0: It's a real privilege to uh, be able to speak with you tonight. And you know, when you have space for preparation, like I've had for the last few weeks for today, since I don't do this every week, you get to think about some stuff. And so I've been thinking a lot the last couple of weeks about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in our time and place in history. And I've come to a very profound conclusion. It would be a lot easier to follow Jesus if we didn't have to do it with other people. Now, the problem, of course, as someone along the way has said, is that when we do come to follow Jesus, we find out very quickly that he brings his whole family with him, which includes all the weird aunts and uncles and even us. And that's just how it is. And so whether we like it or not, we do live out our faith with other people, don't we? I mean, we live out the whole of our lives, for the most part, with other people. We do that with spouses and neighbors and friends and coworkers and employees and our children, uh, our extended family even. And our lives are constantly impacted by these ongoing relationships. And these relationships don't come out of a vacuum. They're really formed within the realities of our time and place in human history. We're all shaped by the human cultures within which we live and that's not just unique to us that goes throughout all of history and certainly applies to the earliest followers of Jesus Jesus words that we heard tonight are part of a larger response that he had been making to two of his young disciples James and John two brothers with apparently very high aspirations they had just finished requesting of him that they be given the the positions to the right and left of him when he comes into what they referred to as his glory, which apparently in their minds had something to do with taking over the place, ruling power in Israel, and they would like to have those two spots reserved for them. Well, the right and the left of a ruling monarch would be, in our minds, kind of like the new president calling a couple of people up and saying, why don't one of you be secretary of defense? and one of you, Secretary of State. These are positions of tremendous influence and power. Well, right away, as he often does, Jesus recognizes the misperception that's going on here, and he asks them if they really can accept being that closely aligned with him. Can they drink the cup, he asks? Can they experience his kind of baptism? And they say, yeah, yeah, no problem. We can do that. Well, <clears throat> the, the corrective that Jesus brings to them is one that really must run counter to everything that these brothers had been assuming about relationships of power. And Jesus points out that the kind of power that lords over people is the kind of power that you see everywhere. He says it's the Gentiles that do that, which is kind of you know a, a shortcut for pretty much everybody who's out there somewhere. And it's the kind of power that most of the world experiences. And in that time and place, power and tyranny in the ancient Near East were two sides of the same coin. Well, Jesus, as he speaks to these two brothers, then goes on to make a startling claim. He says, regardless of all that, it is not to be so among you. Now, in our Ephesian text, Paul is addressing a a situation that is somewhat similar The recipients of the letter lived in a very important city, the city of Ephesus, hence the name of the book. And it was home to a huge shrine. They've actually found parts of this shrine in recent years. And a a large temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis. Uh, She was an icon of worship in that region. And uh, according to popular mythology, Artemis was a twin. And she was born just minutes ahead of her brother Apollo, making her, of course, the older sibling Uh, the firstborn, as it were, the one who had priority in birth. And because of that, there was a belief, some scholars believe, that was permeating that particular culture that said, because of that close affinity to this female deity, it was very clear that women were innately superior to men. Which half of this room might possibly agree with, I don't know. I was forced to work in the yard all day today. Maybe this is a true thing, I, I don't know. But in tension with that popular belief was the the hard reality that Ephesus was still part of the larger Greco-Roman world, which was patriarchal, which was male-dominated. Men enjoyed rights and privileges and power that were not afforded to women. And I just start imagining the arguments that would erupt in Ephesian households when husband and wives would try to figure out whose job it is to take out the garbage. I mean, if you're innately superior, do you have to do that? You know, if the law has given you the power, are you exempt from garbage duty? I mean, the fights sound familiar, actually. Um, Well, both Jesus and Paul spoke into the cultural and, and societal realities that framed their worlds, but they called people in that context to live in contrast societies that demonstrated a completely different economy of life. And they both recognized that cultural demands were powers that would indeed form how people engaged in human relationships. That was just real. But Jesus still says, it is not to be so among you. And Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know, none of us can successfully, truly extricate ourselves from our culture. Our culture, cultural immersion forms the way that we think about pretty much everything, about life, how we interact with other people. And, and that's why the present reality of the kingdom of God is so often an offense to people. The, the economy of the kingdom calls us to live in a different way, calls us to live with our eyes wide open, recognizing that we are indeed in a culture that forms us, but giving ourselves over to being transformed and reformed by the Spirit of God. And that causes us sometimes to find ourselves at odds with our own world. It also causes us to look more broadly at our own family of faith, really. Uh, hopefully with a, in a constructive sort of critiquing manner as we look at the larger church in the world. And I'm hoping that on that note, God is not keeping a scorecard because I'm not convinced we're going to do all that well, at least in North America. Um, we seem to have just about as many publicized scandals within the life of the church as major politicians do and we have enough infighting going on among all kinds of Christian groups that uh, makes the hope for unity seem almost fruitless at times we all know we've seen the stats that that divorce rates among North American Christians are pretty much the same as the rest of the culture too many Christian writers and bloggers that I've seen have taken up the dual mantles of of condemnation and judgment and offer up a combative rhetoric that runs parallel to what we hear during an election year by our candidates. And and I'm imagining someone out there standing on the outside of all of this stuff looking in saying, so tell me, how come you guys are any different? Looks like the same wine in a different bottle, perhaps. And somewhere off in the background, I keep hearing Jesus saying, it is not so among you. Well, you know, neither Jesus nor Paul speaks to us in in a way that suggests they experience the realities of their world to go away anytime soon. Uh, Jesus very likely understood that tyrannical, abusive power would continue to hold sway in that part of the world for a very long time. And Paul very likely understood that the culturally formed relationships between husbands and wives and masters and slaves and children and parents would continue the way that they had been continuing in that part of the world. And the relational realities of our world aren't going to disappear anytime soon. And yet Jesus and Paul, in the midst of all of that, still call us to live in different realities. You know, sometimes you'll you'll look at at your Bible translation, and there's a a heading inserted there. It's not really part of the text. It just sort of helps you to know what's coming next. And there are some Bible translations translations that will call these household codes. And I get what they're trying to say, you know. I don't don't like it. It's not my preference, because it kind of reduces what's coming next to a formula. And I'm not clear that that's really what's going on here. Um, Because I like to think of that Ephesian text from this morning in this way. Uh, and first of all, last week Todd spoke of this rich and complex paragraph that comes before all of this, and and in it, Paul the apostle calls his Ephesian friends to this very broad, expansive way of life, and he hits it with a bunch of points. He says, "Be careful how you live. Make the most of every opportunity. Understand what the Lord's will be. Fi- what the Lord's will is, and be filled with the Spirit." Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit. Sing and make music to the Lord. Always give thanks to God. And submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now I see all of that as prelude to what Paul will now address. He's going to address the particulars of foundational human relationships. Now imagine for a moment that there's a huge Big old billboard-sized sign hanging down from the ceiling with gigantic words on it. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, lest we miss it. It's right up there, gigantic letters. And all of a sudden, the door bursts open. In runs Paul with some smaller signs, which he hangs on hooks underneath that big placard. And the first one says, husbands and wives. And the middle one, that will be talked about probably next week, says children and parents. And the one over here says slaves and masters. All relationships that the Ephesian readers would have understood and been familiar with and perhaps were even experiencing within their own lives. And so Paul calls people, and he starts right over here with the placard that says husbands and wives. He calls us into new relationships that are marked by love and mutual submission rather than by dominance, oppression, and antagonism. Now, these relationships stand in stark contrast to those that would have been common in that popular culture. Now, For example, in the text tonight, Paul speaks of, of the husband, the man, being the head of the woman. Now, now clearly, in that culture, a, a husband would indeed have rights and power and privileges that were not offered to his wife. In fact, they would be privileges that would be legally sanctioned. But Paul speaks transformationally about that culturally formed role and claims that, okay, if indeed we've got a framework that claims by law that the husband is the head of the wife, then here's how it needs to be for you. It needs to be the way Christ is the head of the church. It's a headship that has nothing to do with oppression, nothing to do with dominance, nothing to do with antagonism. It has to do with love, sacrifice, and care. And self-giving you know imagine how challenging and difficult Paul's words might have been in that ancient Ephesian context maybe he called women to respect that's the word that appears in our text to respect their husbands because the larger culture had replaced respect with the concept of innate superiority one better than the other Husbands may have been known to lord their power over their wives, maybe even to the point of abuse and oppression. Now I recognize that this text could be controversial for Christians. I've read the blogs, you know. Uh, I, uh, I've heard all kinds of arguments about egalitarianism versus complementarianism, and because formulas make me nuts, I never did well in you know science and physics and stuff like that. I don't like formulas. Uh, But I really don't think these kinds of categories fully capture what's really going on here anyway. I'm not hearing, in Paul's words, the establishment of a new kind of hierarchy with men over women. I'm not even sure I'm hearing a flattening out where everything is simply benignly the same. What I'm hearing is a transformational call to a dynamic, love-oriented life that finds expression in a culture that constantly works to form those relationships in ways that are other In the way of Jesus and that's why those big letters on the sign are so important to us submit to one another out of reverence for Christ now I also recognize that submission is one of those scary God words isn't it Um, you know when some people hear the word submission to be subject to someone it begins to conjure up images that aren't always all that helpful like military hierarchies or monarchies or or relationships of servitude or slavery. But there's something else going on in Paul's words, I think. He calls his readers to step into attitudes and actions that are characterized as being submissive. And he says, submit. It's a call to come to a place, to submit to one another. It's a willing action. It's an act of intention. It suggests the giving up of one's personal and maybe even legal rights to power. Giving preference to the lives of others rather than grasping tightly to the right to control, to manipulate, or to oppress. And in that ancient culture, it was not only controversial, but maybe even scandalous. Maybe in our culture as well. You know, I have to be honest with myself as I think through this stuff and think of the places in my own life where I need to let go of my right to power, places where I've claimed the right to be in control, to manipulate my surroundings, to posture for position. Uh, I'm sure we, I'm hoping we all have places like that. I mean, I'm not hoping it on you. I'm just hoping I'm not up here alone laying claim to this kind of thing. Um, I mean, maybe at times we believe on a, even on a subconscious level that we've got a right for these things. We've got a right to withdraw. We have a right to control. We've perhaps earned it in some way. Um, maybe we find ourselves posturing from time to time in order to gain an advantage over someone. Clearly, James and John were doing that. I'm really glad that Jesus said, it is not so among you rather than it is not so in you. You see, I don't think Jesus was willing to allow his words something that would just find an internal place of of, of rest within the the people hearing them, Um, a place to think about maybe, a place to consider, but not really a place to act, a place to respond. Instead, he pushed his words right into the relationships that were being shared by his friends and so the not so that he spoke of had to be lived out tangibly with real live human beings in community there would be observable demonstration that there was something else going on with jesus followers than was going on anywhere else now i think that there's an incredible freedom to be found in this call of jesus this call that's echoed and expanded upon by Paul. It's a call to be for one another. It's a call to look for the best in one another. It's a call to serve one another out of love and care. It's a freedom to disentangle ourselves from the dominance of self-interest and power and a freedom to authentic love and relationship. You know, the closest that our contemporary world comes to this kind of life is described in one word. It's the word tolerance. Um, tolerance is an okay word. You know, I mean, the idea is if we can just tolerate one another, if we can just let everyone do what they want to do and not, you know, get all worked up about it just because somebody acts a little differently or thinks a little differently or believes a little differently, if we could just do that, just tolerate everybody, then everything's going to work out Okay. Um, Now, I'm all for tolerance, particularly when tolerance is a firewall against hatred and violence. But for us, it stops a little short. Because, see, I can tolerate you and not care a whole lot about you. You know, I can tolerate what you do, what you believe, what you think, and not care one way or the other. But at least I've tolerated you, haven't hated you, haven't brought violence into your life. See, tolerance is indeed a firewall against hatred, but for us, it's also a firewall against love. And for us, that's insufficient. See, for us, the goal is not tolerance. The goal is love. You know, none of this is to say that communities of Christians are supposed to somehow be isolated from and in constant antagonism with the rest of the culture. I know there are those out there that think that's the case. I I don't think that's our call to be, in com- be combative with our culture all the time. Uh, on the contrary, it's to say that the not-so of Jesus and the submit-to-one-another of Paul are descriptors of life within the community of Jesus that are to serve as the light of the world, the salt of the earth, offering up to everybody the possibility that there can be a new kind of life with relationships that can flourish in love And mutual care. And the real source of power in all of this isn't us in the first place, it's the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that does the work of transformation as we submit ourselves over and over to God and submitting ourselves over and over to one another. Well, Jesus offered up to his friends the, the best and only example of what he's describing in his not-so message. He offers up himself. And he says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And my friends, this is the word of the Lord.